This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a special episode today. We will be discussing of ways to self-regulate physical activity and other health behaviors to maximize well-being during and beyond the coronavirus crisis. Our today's guest is professor in health services research in Plymouth University. He has conducted laboratory studies, randomized controlled trials, systematic reviews, meta-analysis, and qualitative research. He has been founding co-editor of Mental Health and Physical Activity Journal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor Adrian Taylor. So what kind of research is keeping you busy at the moment? I've been involved in work on physical activity and mental health for much of my my career, over 30 years. Um, More recently, I've been working in a medical school for the last six years, uh, running some large trials concerned with the effects of physical activity on um, well-being, on uh, physical and mental health through exercise referral schemes with a prescription by GPs. Um, And one of the common themes all the way through my career has been looking at how increasing physical activity can be used to help people with multiple chronic conditions um, and addictions. So in particular, we've been publishing work on the effects of exercise on helping people reduce their smoking or give up smoking uh, on alcohol and in terms of um, compulsive eating or snacking. Uh, so the role of acute and chronic exercise on self-regulating other health behaviours. So run, running big trials is really um, takes it out of you. I work with a clinical trials unit in the UK. Uh, I've had a lot, of, uh, a lot of funding from our National Institute of Health Research and these trials last for three or four years. Um, I'm delighted that the most recent one that we have just finished coming towards the end has uh, completed data collection for 917 people who were recruited with a nine-month follow-up. And those are smokers who don't want to quit but do want to reduce. And we aim to provide behavioral support with physical activity to help manage smoking, craving, weight gain from cessation, um, and so on. So, But I'm delighted to say uh, before everything here with the coronavirus has shut down, um, we just completed our primary outcome follow-up at nine months. Um, you know, there are many other trials that are going on that are just being put on hold, and that makes it really, really difficult for um when you've recruited people some time ago, they don't complete their follow-ups and so on. So I'm pleased that um, uh, the, the, this particular study uh, has has got got the data in the bag, if you like. Um, but I can talk a little bit about the interventions that we've been offering to people in that context. 
So um, I first got interested in the work around physical activity and um, and uh, other health behaviours uh, through somebody called Roy Shepherd, who's very well known when I was a student at the University of Toronto. He wrote a paper on the associations between different health behaviours. And sure enough, people who are more active tend to smoke less, uh, tend to drink less unless they're in certain sports. And you can guess which sports those are. Um, in the past, you know, sort of rugby and so on, more sociable sports. Um, but but then the natural question comes out of that is, well, does increases in physical activity actually help people deal with a craving or an addiction to substances like smoking, alcohol? And now we're getting papers through in the journal that I founded 12 years ago, co-founded, um, on internet addiction. I can't imagine through the coronavirus just how much people will become more in, uh, addicted to the internet, but it's a phenomenon that's sweeping through countries like Korea, Southeast Asia, online gambling and betting. These are becoming huge issues. So how does, you know, how does physical activity impact? Does it have common mechanisms on the way in which people take on other behaviors? Um, Self-regulating, does it help people self-regulate, self-control those impulsive or dysregulated behaviours? So that's been a really strong theme of my work um, for a good long 20 years or so, uh, leading up to the, you know, the culmination of my career, probably this £1.8 million trial that we're funded by the National Institute of Health Research here in the UK to look at uh, providing support for increasing physical activity at the same time as smoking reduction for people who don't want to quit but do want to reduce their smoking at least in the immediate uh, future with the main outcomes of actually the number of people in each arm of the trial who actually quit. But I've done an awful lot at la in laboratory level work. So previously I was at before I was in the medical school in Plymouth receiving some of this funding. Um, I worked at Exeter University where I had many more uh, masters, PhD students working on acute exercise effects on mood and affect, but also cravings and um, measures of reward and pleasure, if you like, to down to the level of looking at functional magnetic uh, imagery with people put into a scanner, brain scanner, to look at how they respond to pictures of cigarettes or neutral images after exercise or after no exercise. Um, and we did a number of those studies looking at attentional bias to uh, cigarette cues and alcohol cues, uh, chocolate cues, and the sort of drawing on some of the psychological theories about addiction and, and how we... Um, self-regulate and manage cravings and, and urges, uh, you know, neurologically and, and physiologically as well as psychologically. So it's been great to be able to translate a lot of that work into running an actual trial with real people um, in community settings and uh, recruiting them through our primary care um, settings. Yeah. So what do you see as the as the most interesting findings from all these 
trials related to self-regulation and, and physical activity? Well, I think um, if we go back 10 years ago, people were, psychologists were very clear that if you try and tackle one behavior, you should stick with, with just focusing on that one behavior and not try to take on two behavior changes. I think we're now very clear that 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 isn't necessarily the case. So the risk was that you ended up failing in all the behavior changes, and that's not the case. So we have people who um, try to give up smoking with physical activity, and they certainly don't show any worse attempts at quitting smoking or reducing smoking. If anything, it's, it's more favorable. And we have a number of theories about how that might be. So our, our acute work with physical activity unquestionably showed through 20 different studies or more um, that acute exercise reduces cravings and the urge to smoke. Uh, and those effects are evident from both moderate and vigorous exercise. So the good news there is that you don't have to do vigorous exercise. You could do brisk walking, and that appears to have an effect from just five-minute bouts that last for five minutes, and longer periods of exercise might last for as much as half an hour to an hour. So helping people understand or working with people rather than telling them these sorts of ideas, asking them to reflect on, can you think of a period of time when you haven't smoked as much? And they may reflect that they were walking in the park for two or three hours with the kids and doing something that they enjoyed that provided a distraction that elevated their mood. It took their mind off the stress that they were experiencing and that um, therefore smoking patterns, behavior actually changed as a result of that. So that's that's roughly, you know, some of the summary things that that we've, we've done and we've cited by the U.S. Surgeon's General Report on tobacco control um, and in various guidelines around the world in Australia and Canada uh, on ways of helping people reduce their smoking. Um, so, you know, th- those are those are some big things. And when you run a trial, you run the risk of not showing any effects. And we just have to wait sometimes three, four, five years before we actually get the results. And we're, we're sort of in that stage at the moment with some of these trials that I've just been mentioning. Mm. And, and you said you have a number of theories how, how this could work, that you can actually change more than one behavior at, at the time. Would you like to tell more about the theories? Well, I think there's certainly the element of distraction, um, and we can actually test that, and some studies have done that with a control group that involves distraction, and you still see the same sort of effects consistently. Uh, it could be through improving mood. So we know that people tend to smoke more when their mood is lower, when they're under stress, for relief of boredom, for uh, improving, elevating positive affective state. Um, so we know that when people, it, it, physical activity can replace those urges to get into those affective states that they seek from smoking or indeed 
eating chocolate um, or indeed drinking alcohol. So that that's one approach. Another mechanism might be that people end up going and socialising with different people. So instead of going to the pub after work, if you choose to have a gym membership or you go with friends and do a walk um, and do something that replaces the triggers that would normally contribute to that other unhealthy behaviour, that might be a very reasonable mechanism to, to suggest. Yeah, so you said that there's a distraction mood and socializing with different people do you see that some of them are more influenced in different cases like for example in in smoking versus alcohol use yeah i i think we we when we devise an intervention we make it as generalizable as possible so we we work with individuals we never prescribe um anything. We never prescribe a physical activity. We never prescribe uh, a rate of reduction in smoking. We never talk about having to quit and putting pressure on people. We draw on their own experiences and situations. So, for example, in a a book chapter we wrote, um, and in in a final report, we uh, were working with somebody who smoked. Um, He didn't He told us he smoked about 20 a day and then the following week when we had a a counselling session he he realised that he he came back and said well actually I didn't count all the cigarettes that I was smoking while I was watching television and it's actually about 40 cigarettes I I smoke a day. So he was was not regulating a behaviour and by engaging him in self-reflection, self-monitoring, he was able to think about, well, actually, you know, I didn't, I was doing these behaviours automatically. So putting in a self-regulation mechanism was allowing him to think about it. So he, he wasn't interested in the physical activity at start. At the start, he was more interested in, well, I can manage my smoking reduction. I can I can control that by, uh, you know, looking at five cigarettes less a day or a week and then a reduction. And I've got complete control over that process. Nobody's telling me what to do. And then a few weeks later, he came back to us and said, well, you know what? I've, um, uh, I'm actually feeling less breathless by going up the stairs. And that's prompted me to think, well, actually, you know, one of the things I've always wanted to do was go back to using the gym. And, and getting into an exercise regime. And so that, that thought pattern has, has triggered itself from his own self-reflection rather than any prescription on our part. So what, what our interventions tend to do is very much help people gain a sense of control over behavior change rather than being prescriptive. And particularly, you know, when people are going through high and low mood states, that's um, that they can monitor those moods. They can associate wanting to smoke more with low mood, with being bored, with the affective situations that drive behaviours. And so um, this then became, uh, the point for this particular person was that he, he decided when he started going to the gym, he thought, well, this is crazy. I'm undermining all the benefits from doing the exercise. and he just quit. 
So from somebody being somebody who wasn't interested in quitting, we shifted somebody to the point of quitting and taking ownership of that quit attempt. Um, For other people, it might be that they've experienced attempts to quit. Most smokers are people who've attempted to quit in the past and had struggles with that. And they may have gained weight, and the average weight gain might be from four to seven uh, kilograms a year in the first year after quitting. And that causes a relapse back to smoking, and um, they've struggled uh, with that weight gain in terms of their personal identity and self-esteem. And so by taking on physical activity at the same time, that's potentially adds a way and it is actually one of the most effective ways of managing that weight gain. So people find ways of doing this in their own way. And we never make an assumption about prescription. We work with people. Mm. So one, one of the, uh, for, stop me if I'm talking for too long. But No, um, no, no. It's very, very interesting. It's no, no need to stop. I think it's very interesting that... Uh, like you explained that there's different kind of stories and that the actually that the weight gain is often the problem when you stop smoking that it leads to a different identity or identity crisis and then it's easier to start smoking how how often do you see this kind of pattern um i think it's it's people who have experienced it so we may start a a um a session which is underpinned with self-determination theory, which I can talk a little bit more about before, but also motivational interviewing principles. So we start by um, asking somebody possibly, so tell me a little bit about, you know, your, your smoking over the years. You know, have you ever tried to reduce before? You know, what brings you here to this session today? And that gets them engaged, that gets us an opportunity to express empathy and understanding of their situation. So they may raise it with them themselves that, oh, I've tried many times, I've tended to put on weight and I've gone back to uh, smoking or I've started interacting again with other people and they put pressure on me to start smoking because of the places I go to. Um, and so on. And so we may just say, oh, I've wanted, just wondered if you've ever sort of tried physical activity. And, you know, that opens the door for another conversation and a distraction from that. And I, some of the, what, what we do in our setting up developing interventions is we, we do an awful lot of what we call public patient involvement. And in an earlier piece of work that we did called um, Walk to Quit, went in and sat in stop smoking service clinics with group group based format there'd be a table of 20 people who all stopped on a certain date turned in their cigarettes their ashtrays their lighter and they all were in this together and they received behavioral support from a stop smoking service advisor we sat in listened and watched and conversations as you might have expected never came up about physical activity People were there to quit smoking. Prior to one of the sessions, we overheard one of the ladies talk about having joined a gym. So instead of going around the circle randomly, just asking 
people to reflect on how it had been for the past week, what cravings they've had, how they managed that. We started the conversation with this particular lady. Turned out she, a friend next to her had also gone and they talked about their physical activity and how it was helping them. And believe it or not, that the entire room talked about how physical activity could or couldn't help them with their smoking. So the conversation was not about how hard it had been dealing with cravings. It was about a distraction about physical activity. And so we tried to embed that into, um, into our interventions. So we get people to think about, you know, experiences. You know, when have you gone without a cigarette for a while? Was it, you know, were you being physically active at the time? You know, what, what have you tried? You know, what if, what could you learn from other people? And we, we use hypothetical examples. So we say, Oh, I was just, I was just talking to somebody the other day, you know, in, in this job that I've got supporting people. And, and they were saying, um, if I did physical activity, it helped me reduce my weight and also really helped me prevent boredom and, um, and some of the cravings. So, and, and we say, well, you know, well, how do you feel about that? You know, about this story that somebody else has told us. So using those sorts of opportunities for people to be prompted and reflected in a non-directive way, we find goes down very well with, with participants in our trials. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Yeah, and, and do you usually actually get people to do the physical activity with this kind of prompting, or do you need to do more actions to actually get them to start physical activity? So we, we're, we just updated our Cochrane review on exercise and smoking cessation in December. Michael Usher and I have been writing that for 20 years, um, updating it regularly. And most of the interventions have been around um, prescri- prescribed exercise. So Best Marcus in the, in the US um, led the one of the only trials really that has provided us with good evidence that exercise can help manage smoking and help quit rates. And they were very prescriptive. So they got a group of smokers who were very committed very enthusiastic, probably in a university setting, quite well educated. And sure enough, you know, and engaged in this compared with a control group who didn't get the prescribed two or three exercise sessions a week, the exercise showed a benefit. As um, time has passed, we've realized that exercise sessions, when you try and put them on for smokers, aren't particularly well attended. It's not something that they, you know, we know that people who smoke are less active and as time has gone by, um, smokers have become more hardened as the, as the prevalence rate has, has reduced 
um, fewer and fewer people smoking. Um, those smokers who do smoke are quite resistant, becoming more resistant to change. So we have to develop new ways of approaching this rather than just offering a prescribed two or three sessions of exercise in alone or in group format. And so we've been trying to look at more efficacy rather than effective, sorry, effectiveness rather than efficacy studies. So efficacy studies would focus on a specific dose. Effectiveness would focus on if you were to offer this behavioral support in the community to people who want to reduce but don't want to quit, what would be the consequences? And um, so it's more tailoring it to using motivational interviewing, client-centered approaches that engage. If people don't come back after the first session, then there's no chance of change. But if we develop empathy in the first session, we are seeing that we're engaging people with up to five, six sessions on average across 450 people um, to come back, talk to us on the phone, talk to us face to face and look at ways of behavior change using, you know, some of the theories. So I spoke before about self-determination theory and this fit really well with motivational interviewing. So we've broken um, self-determination theory into the three C's. So when we work with practitioners, and we've done this, we, we did this, first of all, with a trial on exercise in primary care for patients with depression. And we trained practitioners to um, think about the three C's. Think about the three C's in terms of that immediate session that you've got with a participant in front of you, and you've got the period of time before you meet again. So we ask practitioners to think about the first C might be, have you undermined their sense of competence or confidence? So I could easily undermine the sense of confidence if I said, really, you should be trying to achieve 10,000 steps or you should be doing 30 minutes a day, most days of the week, and uh, it should be a moderate vigorous activity, vigorous level. And I find it during a typical workday very, very difficult to achieve 10,000 steps. I don't know if, if you do. Uh, I think many people struggle. So if you set a government target of that and it's way out of the reach of most people, then you're setting people up for failure. You're undermining their sense of confidence. If you set client-centered goals, you, you work with somebody to set what might be reasonable, to be achievable, smart goals, then you build up and you work and you don't experience failure so much, whether it's just the physical activity or the smoking or whatever. Um, so we built that in to, to also get people to, in that individual session, also go away and think about between now and the next session when we meet, how will you feel more competent? So yes, set some goals, achieve those goals, you'll feel more competent. But also um, trying to avoid barriers, overcome barriers, think about barriers, planning, what if scenarios and so on. 
let's move on to the second C, sense of control. Um, so are we undermining people's sense of control by being prescriptive? I think we are very often. Uh, what happens when, um, if we were to give somebody a prescription right now, then they're not controlling it. The prescription is, I think you ought to do three sessions a week uh, to get your fitness level up. But, you know, we're taking control away from people by being prescriptive. Mm. How we exercise is, is really, um, you know, where we exercise. There are many opportunities for giving people a sense of control over the decisions of how quickly to increase that progression of exercise, where to do it, who with, um, and how intense uh, and where it fits into their life. So it may be active commuting, it may be um, uh, walking with the family, uh, maybe pushing a pram briskly, giving people the opportunity to identify things that fit in with their life gives them a sense of control. And we do, we try and have a check after each session that a practitioner has worked with somebody in what ways we ask them to write down in what ways have you given people a sense of control. And the third C that we talk about is connecting. And that is about relatedness. If you go back to self-determination theory, it's mm. it's about doing the things that you can enjoy and share with other people. So I listened to Stuart Biddle's podcast, and we are in this incredible, difficult situation with corona where we're self-isolating. For some people, that is living at home by themselves. And a prescription that it would be a good idea if you did three sessions of exercise a week or if you did 30 minutes a day in your front room. I've always said to students, you know, if you were given an exercise bike to sit in the front room by yourself and do 30 minutes exercise a week without being able to feel more confident without connecting with other people, without feeling in control. It's just a prescription. I don't think most people would last very long doing that. So we're trying to look at ways of sustainable physical activity and self-determination theory is nothing new for motivating people to be physically active. But we've just broken it down into the three C's which our practitioners can remember um, in order to check that you know they're, they're doing the right thing with people. They're not removing a sense of competence. They're not reducing a sense of control. They're not reducing a sense of connectedness and companionship. And so many of the things that Stuart was talking about in the other podcast was about connecting with other people through the internet, through exercise classes, um, competing even with other people. If you've got a, a bicycle with a connected to the internet, you can you know see how you're doing with other people. But it's a unique time where we can't use Strava outside, and we can't you know we we can't connect with people in the way that I do. I, I do something called Hash House Harriers, and I run with running groups, and I orienteer, and we meet, and we chat, and and so on, and it's. It's just taken away from us all uh, the social element, but you know, finding ways to connect with people through physical activity is a way that 
not only is going to help you be more sustainable over the months to come in your behavior, but it's also going to help you feel better about yourself, about your well-being. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, people often ask me, well, how much exercise do I need to do for feeling good for mental health? And the answer is always as much as you feel you can do in a way that will help you feel better and you will mm. continue to do it. Um, so, you know, there's no fixed dose, I don't think. Um, you know, I often say that just doing exercise by itself has some physiological benefits on our mood. And we can all, you know, recall endorphins and stuff like that. But if it's not sustainable, if it doesn't give you a sense of control and companionship and a sense of competence by improving in some way, then it's unlikely to have as much of a benefit as just doing it by itself. Mm, very, very interesting points. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. Do you think we should really avoid prescribing anything? And do you think even the physical activity recommendations go wrong that they are really prescriptive? Yeah, we've we've talked within the editorial uh, group on um, uh, mental health and physical activity. This this journal about whether there can be a separate prescription for mental health, because the prescription is very much based on cardiovascular fitness, and we used to think many of the earlier studies in America, where they started doing this work before, was very much a prescriptive. If we test the effects of three sessions of exercise on mood. Um, you know, people, physiologists were adding to the outcomes of interest instead of just looking at effects on weight, effects on blood pressure, effects on uh, cardiovascular fitness. People started to put in a few measures of mood and affect. And, um, you know, the, the, this was going back 40 years when the first book on physical activity and how you feel was written. Um, so I think um, the the dose response question around physical activity and mood and, and affect and, and mental health is much more, um, we need to add the quality of the experience as much as the quantity. So a prescription, a simple prescription isn't something that might necessarily be sustainable. It might be for 10 weeks if you're in an exercise program. Um, I've spent quite a lot of my career looking at the effects of GP doctor exercise referral programs for people with chronic conditions where a patient is referred into a gym 
And the earlier the earlier schemes back in the early nineties were very much about following a prescription. Uh, and I think the field has moved on now to helping people find ways to accumulate those physical that amount of physical activity or their sustainable amount of physical activity for themselves and with who they want um, uh, in a way that's more sustainable. So walking with groups outside might float somebody's might might be more suitable than sitting in a gym. So I think yes, prescription for exercise and mental health is is more difficult to be prescriptive than it is for um than other physical health problems in the uk we have um guidelines on uh, exercise and depression and those guidelines are based on the research that's being done and sure enough if we look back over the last 30 years the the research that has been done has was mainly around prescribed doses and there was an assumption that if you got fitter you reduced your depression and we certainly know now that that's not the case, that if you have a quality experience, you can get just as much benefit um, if you quality experience in terms of doing it with other people, sharing the experience in terms of being in blue space and green space. You can enhance the quality of the experience rather than just sitting in your own room, sort of pedaling away on a bicycle. Mm, these are really, really good points. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear these. That, yeah, we, we, I think the recommendations now are really medical, physiological, and they don't take care the quality of experience at all. Or maybe there's a little bit saying that what you enjoy is good, but I think this would also help to people to adhere and and do better so i think it's a really really good idea to to try to bring more the quality in addition to quantity yeah so just turning to well-being uh Ollie. so in the uk the government commissioned a report on ways to well-being and they did a review of literature and they came up with five ways to well-being because governments are really keen that their populations increase their sense of well-being. I think the current coronavirus is an incredibly natural experiment and we we will in, in the future look back at how, how it, self-isolation of a third of the world's population has impacted on people's sense of well-being, if not their sense of more um, serious mental health problems. But the this report from about 10 years ago now was um, a for- called the Foresight Report, identified five key ways to well-being. And we, we've repackaged these again to help trained practitioners who we were working with offenders under community supervision in the community uh, who really come from really disadvantaged backgrounds. And the primary outcome of our study um, with 120 people uh, was there was an intervention to provide improvements in well-being 
primary outcome was Warwick Edinburgh Mental Wellbeing Scale. And typically offenders have, and people living in prison have much lower scores of well-being. They're, they're more like under 40, uh, whereas the normal population is 50 to 55. And so improving well-being we know is actually a key to how people behave. So higher levels of well-being associated with lower alcohol intake, lower smoking, more physical activity, and better self-regulation. Lower levels of well-being are associated with worse behaviours, health behaviours, because people turn to self-medication. And so we don't know at the moment, it will be interesting to see what the consequences of self-isolation will be, because it may well impact on increases in alcohol consumption, more online gaming, and um, getting your thrills, if you like, from other other behaviours, pornography, um, all sorts of self-rewarding behaviours. Um, but one of the, the so the five ways to well-being, which was in this government report, was about um, we've called them clang, C L A N G. So C stands for connecting. We know that if you connect with people, improves well-being. If you're well connected, you've got good social support networks. And at this current time, you know, most of us are talking about connecting with people who live in isolation through the through internet, through however we, we can do that, telephone and so on. L for learning. So people who engage in learning tend to have better well-being. By learning, we can um, get involved in courses, in training, feeling more competent about our knowledge, taking an interest in a variety of things which adds to our ability to understand the world. So many people are learning about viruses, about the spread of viruses, about epidemiology, just by listening to the news. We're going through a period of un unprecedented interest in these things. Um, so that actually possibly helps people feel better. Um, activity, clang, C-L-A, activity. So physical activity is in there. It makes people, improves people's sense of, sense of uh, worth, sense of well-being. Uh, notice, N. So noticing things when people notice changes in themselves, they take an interest, they experiment, they change, notice the environment, the leaves starting to come out in spring, they notice weight loss, they notice diet, uh, dietary change and patterns through self-monitoring. Um, they notice, you know, if you wear an accelerometer or a pedometer, you start to notice that you've had an inactive day, you notice that you've had a more active day, how many steps you've achieved. This is all helping you gain a sense of ex self-experiment, if you like, a sense of well-being. And G, uh, G for giving, being altruistic. So people have a higher sense of well-being when they give, when, when they're altruistic. So you could do a sponsored run. You could do, you could sponsor somebody to be physically active. You could uh, volunteer in a sports group. 
you could become a coach and volunteer, you could do all sorts of ways of helping an older person get out for a walk. Um, you know, our, our current guidelines, as they are in other countries in self-isolation, are, you know, you should get out and do one exercise session a day. That's what you're allowed to do. Um, so I know you're not supposed to get in contact with people, but, you know, there are people in your own family who you can um, help uh, through through physical activity. So one of the things we focused on in this intervention with offenders was changing a number of health behaviours at the same time, including physical activity. And we cross-tab the clang, the connect, the learn, the activity, the notice and the giving against a number of behaviours. So if somebody said... Um, in this intervention, we asked them, you know, so are you interested in any of these lifestyle changes? And they may say, diet, I'm interested in, you know, I've, I know I've got a terrible diet, I, I should change. So we think about, okay, so connecting, is there anybody who's got a better diet? Could you connect in the internet about diets, you know, better support by a better diet? Are the cooking groups learning? Could you find how many calories there are in a product and learn about food and energy intake, etc. Is there a physical activity that you could do to help regulate your chocolate consumption? Uh, noticing weight gain, assessing, self-monitoring, um, giving. Is there a way that you could um, provide food for other people, uh, homeless people, um, through through diet uh, and and uh, nutrition and so on and in those ways you've actually ticked some boxes about improving your own sense of well-being and you could do the same thing with physical activity so it's not just about doing the physical activity it's about connecting it's about learning it's about noticing changes in yourself and in the environment getting out into blue and green space and about being altruistic and giving by being physically active. So we we put together in some of these interventions some really, you know, logical things, but try to break them down into ways that practitioners can work with on a on a one to one basis. Yeah, um, I yeah, well, it, it all, all makes really sense. Effort. Yeah. Yeah, please please go on. So in the situation we find ourselves, we, we could be carers, we could be responsible for an older person who's in confinement because they're vulnerable. We could have kids in our own house, in our own household, and we're all self-isolating. So the practitioners we work with who are trained to check these things about Klang and about the three C's if you're a parent, you could try and check these things off with your kids. Are you helping your kids through whatever physical activity you do to, to connect with others, other kids? Are you helping them to learn about their bodies? Are you helping to notice the changes that they experience? So if they do an exercise regime, they take... They do an exercise program, they take their heart rate, they're noticing what their heart rate response is to that exercise. 
And maybe that changes over the next three months. And you could get them to write that down and, and notice the changes. You could do a sponsored exercise thing within the household or in the exercise sessions where you go out as a family. You could um, sp say, if I achieve so many steps, I'm going to give this amount of money to a charity. Um, so that all enhances the quality of the experience rather than just the quantity. So I think you know, you know, a lot to reflect on there, but some you know, it's quite it's a little bit more structured because we've had to develop these interventions in a way that practitioners could be trained, and in a way that we can check that the practitioners are doing what we are asking them to do. In other words, moving on to what we call intervention fidelity. But I think there are some lessons to be learned in the current current situation that we're all in about physical activity not just being a dose, but being about the quality of the experience, whatever situation we're in. Yes, and I, I think it all makes a lot of sense with the clang. And do you have have you written a guide for practitioners how to how to use and utilize this or where they can learn more about this. Okay, so we've published a protocol paper on our um, Strengthen study, which was the one with offenders. We're just about to submit a protocol paper, which again describes the intervention content uh, for our um, smoking reduction and physical activity trial, which I was talking about before, this £1.8 million trial with 915 smokers who don't want to quit but do want to reduce. So the intervention is described within that those papers. So the strengthened paper has certainly been published. The full report has been published, which again looks at intervention fidelity delivered by health trainers. Uh, and so that, that I can send you some links to that, those papers. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid, and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear, and you can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. And how, how do you see this corona situation that there's social isolation and so on? How would you advise people to use these uh, parts of Clang to be able to actually do physical activity now in this, these special times? Yeah, so I think, you know, just just going back to the quality of the experience, so improving well-being, if if that's, you know, keeping keeping fit, yeah, physical physical health is, is you know, really important. Um, but how to maximise if you are able to keep active, going out, doing one exercise session a day, um, or you're able to do exercises, Stuart Biddle was talking about 
on online with dance classes and and other groups online. Um, can you do those with other people? Can you share the experience um, uh, either before or, or after it or within your own household with the kids, with an older family member, um, husband, wife, you know, the, within your household? You're connecting with people and you're, you're actually, some, some families may never have exercised before together. So it's actually, it's a remarkable opportunity um, to, to actually do things together. Uh, I looked out my window yesterday and I saw a father and son doing some DIY work. The son must have been about seven years old, but he's pushing the wheelbarrow with some bricks in, in his back garden. And, you know, they've probably never done that before. I looked again, I was out for a run a couple of days ago. And a six-year-old girl was painting the wall outside their house where they park the car. And the parents have got them involved in some physical activity related to DIY. Those people, parent, child are connecting in a way they've never connected before. So phenomenal opportunities if you think about how you can, you know, do DIY gardening with, with kids. Learning, you know, if you have, if you are fortunate to have a garden, you know, it's a great time in spring to start planting some stuff, see the seeds grow, learn about, you know, how far to plant them, you know, sustainable, you know, being sustainable in our food and, and diet. A uh, great way to learn about, um, you know, the natural environment and the seasons. Um, Noticing these things, noticing, monitoring, self-monitoring your activity level. So try experimenting. What's the least number of steps you can do in a day? I could probably do no more than a thousand steps, just going up and down the steps. On a really bad day, if I was at work in my office, I could do a thousand steps. So experiment. See what's the minimum number of steps that you could do in a day. And then think about what do you normally do? Monitor, self-monitor. So notice these things. What what influences you're doing more? What influences you're doing less? So noticing this. And if you are allowed one exercise session, I have to tell you a joke that the police uh, here in my part of the UK have been inundated by nosy neighbours phoning the police to say that they're sure some people have been going out for two exercise sessions a day. How crazy is that? Mm, yeah, yeah. So you are allowed an exercise session a day to go out and do that. You're allowed to go out and get groceries, um, but you're not allowed to drive to your exercise session. So you can go out, but you can on that walk, on that cycle, on that run, you can notice things that you've never noticed before about your body, about how it responds to hills, about how it responds. How Stop, look around you, notice nature. Um, notice, you know, as things grow and notice the deer, notice, you know, um, frogs, notice, you know, notice things. Be aware, become more aware of your environment. And then lastly, giving. As I said, you can get involved in sponsorship. 
There was a guy on the television yesterday in the UK who had set up a running route around his garden and he did something like 1,200 laps of his garden to do a marathon and he donated money to charity. Um, so you know, he felt even more good about doing the exercise because he was giving as well, one of the five ways to well-being. So there are creative ways to experiment in this time of real uncertainty and you know really unusual about what you know what enhances the experience of being physically active. Mm. Yeah, very very good points. So you brought up many many positive sides that you also see in this situation. How do you see the negative sides with with mental health and? and alcohol use and other things yeah so i think um there's there's a danger of um generating boredom um there's a danger of generating apathy and um a sense of loss of control uh if you are a regular exerciser maybe there's a danger of feeling less competent maybe you were planning to do the London Marathon next weekend and all your training has gone out of the window in the space of two weeks. Um, maybe you um, uh, are obviously isolated and your running group has disbanded and you can't mix with the people. Uh, my, my running group, uh, the Hash House Harriers, we always go to the pub after an hour of exercise in the natural environment and we socialize and that's gone out of the window so maybe those mood states of of low positive affect um, of boredom um, and and uh, low well-being push you into wanting to self-medicate with alcohol and smoking and snacking so it will remain to be seen whether people Eat more and snack more, and um, you know use comfort foods such as crisps, chocolate, you know high energy food sources, and gain weight, or whether the stress uh, actually you know makes them less likely to gain weight, or maybe food shortages make people less likely to lose lose weight. But we we don't know, but uh, Normally, you know, low mood is associated with some unhealthy behaviors. Um, but if you feel apathetic and you feel out of control and disconnected, maybe you don't have the same cues and prompts to get out and be physically active. And you, you can't get turned on, if you like, by sitting on a bicycle by yourself. So maybe that physical activity levels really decline. People gain weight. Um, through unhealthy behaviours, and they smoke more. On the other side of things, there are our public health messaging is coming out with. This is messages like this is the best time to stop smoking for your own health. If we're in this for the long haul for twelve months, if and you said to somebody with a chronic condition. You could reduce your blood pressure by being physically active one day a week. One sorry, one session a week. You could regain control over blood pressure 
overweight to some extent. This is an ideal opportunity. You don't have the stress of work. You've got more control over your life. You can work when you can at home. You can do more sociable things with the family. This is is an opportunity for me to reduce my chronic conditions that seem to be linked to a higher death rate with the coronavirus. So, you know, if you can take control over your healthy lifestyle and reduce your chronic conditions, reduce your blood pressure, your weight, possibly respiratory problems due to smoking, over the next six to 12 months, when this virus might still be around and you haven't yet caught it, but you might catch it, there's a risk here that you could self-manage that risk um, through a more healthy lifestyle. Um, So there is evidence that I was just reading about that comes through the Centre for Perioperative Medicine, which is a cross-disciplinary medical group who seem to have identified some information from China that says fitter people were five times less likely to die having contracted coronavirus. Mm, interesting. So, yeah, so yeah that please might go on. Through because we don't have the same chronic conditions. So you may feel a sense of helplessness in all this situation, but there is an opportunity to actually gain a sense of control and a sense of well-being through doing things that you are in control of. And Stuart Biddle was talking about this. Do the things that you're in control of and focus on those rather than focus on the things that you don't have control over. That that makes sense. So So this is a very special situation, like you said. Are you planning any any data collection to do that we would actually learn more from this this situation from this huge experiment? I, I personally won't. I'm now just since the beginning of February I've reduced to two days a week and that will allow me to write up the studies I'm involved in. Um but I'm starting to wind down if you like a little bit and the sort of work that I do, the study is submitted in outline stage, takes six months to get into the full bid stage, takes another year to get into the, you've received the funding, you can start, uh, and the four years perhaps to do the study. So I don't want to be in my 70s when I'm still doing these studies and um, managing, uh, if another virus comes along, recruitment issues and extensions to contract and all of those sorts of complexities and staffing issues. And so I'm, I've probably done my bit. Um, I've got other junior researchers who are, you know, I'm supporting and so on, but um, I personally am not planning any more studies. Um, but I'm keeping on as editor-in-chief of mental health and physical activity for the next two years. Uh, we're trying to redesign the editorial board, bringing in more editorial board associate editors and editorial board members with interests from uh, exercise and alcohol and drug misuse to depression, um, uh, anxiety, serious mental illness, schizophrenia, um, uh, bipolar depression and so on. 
Um, so, you know, there's a lot still going on. You know, I'm not cutting, I still will be involved for the next five years, but it won't be in terms of leading any more big trials, which take a huge amount of uh, amount of personal energy. Mm, I, I fully fully understand. But I think there's huge opportunities. I think that's what you're what you're saying that um, to to look at. You know, we we will have physical activity monitoring systems around the world that will be able to tell us whether you know people have become more active, less active. You know, there's 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 um, digital remote sensors around. You know, on people's phones and. Google will be collecting this information on, you know, what happens to people and who who are the people who become more active, less active? Are there people with physical activity as a habit? Are other new people seeing the relevance of physical activity in the current circumstance and making an extra effort because those time barriers have perhaps disappeared? They're not spending two hours a day commuting, so they've got more time on their hands to to think about buying an exercise bike, buying the right kit, doing things they've always wanted to do, you know, avoiding inactivity. Um, so it's a it's a really interesting time to to look at some of these questions. Um, and and you know, I think you know, I, I speak to people in more working, um, more manual skill jobs who often say to me, you know, I all my life is physical activity. I'm very active. I don't have time for that leisure physical activity. And so this is now actually a chance where they have an opportunity to think about leisure physical activity. You know, how, how can I do that? You know, I've never had the energy to do it with. You know, I've, I'm a window cleaner. I'm a, a builder. A, um, you know, so, you know, in, in those acti- in, in those um, things, that people do accumulate a lot of physical activity, but they don't do leisure time physical activity, which they have a sense of control over. So now there might be opportunities for people to think about, you know, going for a walk. Where do you go? You know, how far do you walk for? Who do you walk with? And, you know, leisure time in a way that has never been on their radar before. Mm, I I really like that you have been able to prod a lot of positive sides also in this in this situation, and they all make make sense. Is there something else you would like to add to this discussion? Um, no, I, I was obviously concerned I was going to overlap with Stuart Biddle. Um, having listened to his talk um, just a couple of days ago, um, so Stuart. And I have worked together for a long time, and um, uh, socially, and um, you know, we, we're well connected, and similar interests. He inspired, inspired me initially, and no doubt, you know, I've given him some things to think about. Um, so I think I was worried that we would overlap in this podcast, but I think, you know, having said what I've done, I think it is a bit different from what Stuart has said, and it's. You know, possibly adds to the debate and discussion. Um, I think you know, as parents who are perhaps fulfilling the role of PE teacher at home um, during this isolation period, you're having to become you know role models. You're having to become able to help your children with whatever stage they're at, learning about maths, physics. 
um, physical health. Um, and you, you can do that. You can become a PE teacher. Um, because, you know, if you approach it right, if you approach it in a way that's not directive, but encouraging, rewarding, that builds the three C's, a sense of competence, a sense of control and relatedness, you're more likely to have engagement with, with your kids in those types of activities that, that you've got uh, available. So, you know, the principles we use for training our practitioners or our health trainers, are, you can take those principles on and work with your children, work with possibly trying to encourage your older relatives who are in social isolation to be more active, to take an interest in exercise opportunities online or, you know, whether it's lifting up milk bottles, taking an interest in physical health. Um, uh, that, that's something that you can do in a, in a positive way uh, rather than a directive way. So I think, Ollie, that's probably, you know, I've said quite a lot and, you know, hopefully that's been of, of use to listeners. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.